Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Quick note before we begin, the Finding Genius Foundation, as part of the Finding Genius Podcast, has recently completed a book about understanding viruses. So the creation of this book was to interview 100 virologists, ask them a lot of deep, difficult questions, take the most difficult questions, and then re-interview the top 25 or so and ask them the hardest questions I could think of. And we compiled that all into a book. So you'll see question and four or five experts' answers. Question, four or five experts' answers. There's about 30 questions in the book. I think it's a great read for the layperson and for the researcher. talks about a lot of speculation in the world of viruses, such as are they alive or not, and why is it important? Uh, Why do viruses go latent or hidden or ineffective or sit in a person or an animal or another creature for weeks, months, years? and then suddenly become virulent and affect that person. Uh, so there's a lot of really provocative questions in the book. It's now on Amazon. So if you go to Amazon and type in Finding Genius, you'll see the book on viruses. It's also on Kindle. The Audible version is in production and should be ready in approximately a month. But if you want to go and order it now, uh, you can do so again by going to Amazon or Kindle or go, go to findinggeniusfoundation.org and go to Publications. There's an opportunity as well to get the transcripts of all the interviews and to hear the original interviews themselves. If we had put them all together, the book would be about a thousand pages, but we condensed them down to make it juicy and concise and tight and very interesting. So I hope you'll check out the book. Uh, we're now working on one about cancer, but this is going to be our goal is uh, three times a year to come out with these masterclass books that I think will inspire new scientific research. And I hope you'll check it out. Thank you. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast, now a part of the Finding Genius Foundation. A quick note from our sponsor, we have a new book out called Understanding Viruses. It asks a lot of provocative questions. It can be found on Amazon by typing in Finding Genius, based on interviews with 25 top-end virologists. Uh, we ask them all the same questions, and we gather their answers. So check it out on Amazon, Kindle, and soon to be Audible. Today, my special guest is Patricia. She's a research assistant, part of uh, computational and RNA biology, all of the University of Copenhagen. And the reason I'm talking to her is they were able to uh, find the oldest ever DNA, I guess, from a million-year-old woolly mammoth and sequence it. So, Patricia, thanks for coming. Thank you. Hi, everyone. Well, tell me about your your research. So, in general, my my research interests are kind of uh, drifting between ancient DNA and, and phylogenetics, so reconstructing evolutionary history of species and population history and then also they are kind of drifting towards conservation biology uh, so trying to protect species and uh, trying to uh, understand how we can help them survive so i'm kind of trying to to understand both the evolutionary history and and maybe try to help the future a little bit all of this okay. from genetic perspective how did you, uh, so the article I read said that you had uh, sequenced DNA from woolly mammoths. Like, how did you find them? Where were they? What's the background story of it? So the story actually goes back all the way to 1970s uh, when a Russian paleontologist uh, named Andrei Sher 
uh, excavated uh, several molars of, of mammoths from well-described section called Olyorian, and it's a geological section. So it's a place in the stratigraphy uh, where we kind of know the age, at least approximately, and, and we knew that these uh, teeth were somewhere between 600,000 to, let's say, 1.2 million years old. And back then, the ancient DNA field didn't even exist. And as it evolved, maybe in 2007, was the first attempt to get DNA out of these old teeth. But back then, technologies even were not that well developed and were not ready, kind of. So it was only 10 years later, in 2017, when I was actually doing my PhD, studying the woolly mammoths. And uh, we decided to try once more with these really old ones. And uh, we use the newest techniques. Now the field is, is finally ready and, and we employ all of these uh, lab methods and, and all the bioinformatic methods. And we actually did manage to get DNA out of these really old teeth. Uh, how many different mammoths did you get DNA from? So we, we looked at three samples. They range between approximately 700,000 uh, years and 1.2 million years. And uh, this is basically the three samples that we worked on in, in this study. How did you extract the DNA? Did you look at like the mammoth's tusks or what part of it was preserved best that you had? Yeah, so all that we know about is, is uh, molars, is, is the teeth. Uh, so basically, uh, the mammoths, uh, similarly as elephants, uh, they have this uh, deciduous teeth, which means that they exchange teeth uh, through their life, like, for example, humans do, but they have only these molars um, that uh, are on each side of their, of their jaw and in the upper jaw and in the lower jaw. And basically throughout life, they have six sets of these teeth and uh, they get bigger and bigger as the animal grows as well. And they also get worn out because they use them to grind grass. Uh, so they need to replace them. And it, it's a uh, teeth in general like, are made of uh, very sturdy and good quality material for DNA preservation. And it's also something that's usually what we find. So teeth is the, the only thing that we've got left of these mammoths because everything else got degraded over time. So it was this teeth that we used and which we used also to extract the DNA. Okay, very cool. Did you notice differences between the three different mammoths or between the left or right molar if you took both? So we only got, uh, for, for each of the mammoths, we only get one tooth. So it, there's not much left. So, so And it's not usually even like, completely preserved. So it might be just part. The, in general, the teeth were found in different layers, as I mentioned. So they are different age. And we could also see that the oldest uh, tooth, the oldest mammoth, was the one the worst preserved. So it had the least DNA content out of all three. So that was the uh, one of the particular problems that we had to work with to, to get DNA even out of the very old one. How good was the sequencing? Like, what do we know about mammoth DNA? Is it, is it similar to elephant DNA? I mean, wh where does it fall, like, in the evolutionary, uh, you know, diagram of creatures? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so elephants are the closest living relatives for mammoths. Uh, the closest one is the Asian elephant, and then the, the next one is the African elephant. And what we think, or what we know from uh, the molecular dating, is that they probably split from the African elephant about 5 million years ago, somewhere between 5 to 7 million years ago, depends on, on the analysis, and, and there's some confidence intervals around it, but approximately 5 million years ago. So that's, that's um, kind of a reasonable divergence time to work with uh, in terms of genetics and sequencing. So even, for example, humans and chimps are approximately 5 million years of divergence time. 
So that helped us a lot because we do have actually have very good genomic data from, from elephants, particularly there's a very good reference genome from the African savanna elephant. So that helped us uh, to work with these old samples in terms of genetic analysis. So what's interesting about elephant DNA and mammoth DNA? Anything that's really peculiar about it? That's a very interesting question. I don't think anybody has ever asked me this. I think there are several very interesting things. In one way, elephants and mammoths are very important species in, in the ecosystem, not just sort of from the human perspective, because they are they are large and, and cute and interesting animals, but also sort of in general for the ecosystem, because of course they are they are a big animal and they are very important for their ecosystem. They produce a lot of biomass, they consume a lot of the biomass. So they they form also the environment. That's also why, for example, the environment where the mammoths lived, the steppe tundra, it was called the mammoth steppe tundra, uh, because these animals just sort of define how the habitat looks like also for the other species. And we call species like this the keystone species. So in a way, it's very interesting to understand the evolution of these this species and how they manage to colonize the whole world. And basically, mammoths evolved from the common ancestor from, with elephants in, in Africa, and they managed to colonize the whole northern hemisphere basically so it's very interesting to see and look at for example the adaptations how they manage to adapt to the cold environment how they manage to survive all of these climatic cycles and evolved in so many different forms as well so there there has been several species of mammals themselves so from the evolutionary history perspective this is very interesting yeah, how old were the mammoths that you sampled could you tell and how far apart in time were they like what were the relative timescales in which they live. Before we continue, I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700 plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000 plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click on support us. We have three levels of membership from $10 to $49 a month, including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click support us today. Now back to the show. Yeah, exactly. So, so from stratigraphy, from the geological position of the samples, we know that the youngest one was approximately 700,000 years old. The next one was uh, approximately 1.1 million and the last one 1.2 million years old. So that's, that's the time scale that have been, we've been working on. That's cool. Do you, do you ever tell people that it was a mammoth undertaking? Yeah, definitely. I don't usually do this, uh, but uh, yeah, it definitely was. That's cool. That's cool. So again, what was unique about the oldest one versus the newest one? What um, could you tell that there were climate differences, or was it so close together that the climate was the same? What again? What did you notice? Uh, yeah, so so they were all very different, and it was also quite difficult to to figure it out in the beginning. So what we knew from from the morphology and from the timing. Uh, was the youngest one was likely an early form of a woolly mammoth. Then the the two older ones, 
uh, morphologically, they sort of fit with the look of uh, a step mammoth. So in the evolution of, of the mammoth lineage, there, there have been several species that in a way when were like chronospecies. So they sort of go one after the other in, in terms of the timeline, uh, but they also overlap. At least that's as much as we know. So what we thought was that the two of our oldest samples were step mammoths or something that looked like that. And the youngest one was a woolly mammoth. And that's what, how we approached it also in our analysis. But then, uh, interestingly, we saw that the, that the oldest one, the one, point, the one which was 1.2 million years old, didn't quite fit with the picture. And then we found out that it actually was a new genetic lineage, or it was a different genetic lineage than the other one. And that was really surprising because nothing before told us that there, were, that there was more than one type of mammoth back in, in the Siberia back in sort of one million years ago. So was there like a Neanderthal mammoth that kind of disappeared early on? Like what, what was the latest mammoth type? Did it have a name? You know, the youngest type that's ever been observed and um, yeah. you know, how different is it from these? Yeah, so before these guys, before the steppe mammoths and, and woolly mammoths, there have been actually several others. So uh, before that, there was a southern mammoth, which lived a little bit. So this one lived before Pleistocene started. So it was uh, while the climate was a bit warmer. So it was much more sort of closer to the to elephant, sort of, if, if we say it very in a very general way. Uh, but before that, there were also other forms. So there, there was even uh, this mammoth called Mammoth supraniformis. So that was much more, in terms of timeline, primitive uh, mammoth, much more early mammoth. So these were sort of the advanced form already. Okay. Well, what other differences do you notice? You know, either in the DNA or the you know the gene expression, or you know the commonality or the divergence of their. Uh... Mm-hmm. their genes i mean what you know what did you notice overall how does this fit into the picture for you and advance the picture of mammoths so with all this one it was a bit difficult because uh, we've got the least data as, as i said uh, it was more degraded because it was the oldest one so we were struggling a bit with getting enough data and we did not include it in, in the analysis of for example adaptations but with the two other ones with the genomes which were 1.1 million years old and 700,000 years old it was actually interesting because we saw that they, the, oldest, the older one was ancestral to the younger one, which helped us do analysis, which look at the evolution. So we can look at the older and the younger and see what changes happen in between. And we can also compare them to the late Pleistocene woolly mammals. So those that we know much more about, those that are 50,000 years old and younger, and we have many samples for these, and we have already quite some genomic data for these. So we could actually look at this timeline and, and sort of look at, at uh, where and what was happening in their genome. Uh, and one of the things was uh, looking at typical uh, adaptations that we consider sort of the woolly mammoth adaptations. We know this from the late Pleistocene samples. We know several genes that are involved in, for example, thermoregulation, the brown fat deposits, the long fur, and so on. And we could look at, into our two genomes and, and see how many of these typical woolly mammoth adaptations are already present in these. And we were actually quite surprised because more than 80% of these were in both of them. So it wasn't just in the woolly mammoth, in the early form of the woolly mammoth, the one. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes which was 700,000 years old, but also in the other older one, which was supposed to be the ancestor of the woolly mammoth. And that was quite surprising. And, and 
in, in some ways, but very interesting that we could show this. So what do the step mammoths look like versus the woolies? The woolies, I guess I imagine, you know, they're very woolly, but what about the step ones? What's different about them? Yeah, so so exactly. So so this uh, 1.1 million year old genome, it was likely, it could have been uh, a step mammoth. It was likely something which looked like the step mammoth. Um, the problem is that we can't really say that it was a step mammoth because they have been described the the holotype the sort of the individual which is the defining for the species that one comes from from europe i think it's about 600,000 years old the step mammoth so we would need dna from this lineage from these samples to be able to say and confirm that the ones that we have are the same lineage so until we have that we can only say that they look like uh, the step mammoth but since um, we think they have, might have represented this. And we, we did this analysis showing that uh, they already had all the adaptations, or not all, but 80% of them, more than that. The same adaptations that the woolly mammoths had, they quite likely looked uh, quite similar in terms of the, the long fur, the, the brown fat, the good deposit, and the good adaptations for cold climate. So why do you study mammoths? Why do people study them in general? Are they just a window of time where it's very rare to find any creatures? Or is it because not only are they are a keystone creature, but they were around at an interesting time in history? Yeah, that's a very good question. And I think uh, both of these things uh, likely played a very important role. So one thing would be definitely that mammoths uh, lived in the right kind of environment. So for ancient DNA, the best preservation happens in a cold and stable environment. So, per, for example, permafrost, the perennially frozen ground is the best kind of environment you can have uh, so that the DNA stays stable and doesn't degrade and that we can recover it apparently even a million years later. So one thing is that mammoths lived in this very cold environment where we have enough of the samples with good DNA. The second thing is uh, obviously that mammoths are somehow very attractive to humans, I guess, because they are interesting animals, because they have been important for humans in, in the past as well. Uh, there are all these uh, cave paintings, and, and we know that uh, mammoths were important for humans in historical and ancient times as well. So I guess there's there's always been some kind of fascination with these animals. Um, yeah, people like big creatures, and I think anyone yeah. that hasn't been like you know, attacked by an elephant probably would be curious about it. They're, <laughs> they're amazed. So, yeah, I'm sure a bigger, woollier one is even more cuddly, you know, or interesting. Yeah, exactly. So I think there are different diff- different aspects of this. And, and uh, that good DNA preservation also helped mammoths being one of those species that always was kind of on, on the forefront of ancient DNA research. So one of the earliest uh, genomic data came from woolly mammoths, one of the earliest Ancient DNA actually came from the woolly mammals as well. So if we don't don't look at humans and Neanderthals and ancient ancient humans, I mean, in terms of uh, the animal ancient DNA research, mammals were always kind of up there, being the flagship species in some ways. What's next for your research? This their their DNA has been sequenced. Well, I, I forgot to ask: was it completely sequenced? Or are you only getting part of their DNA? Do they have you know just? I don't know, anything special or interesting about their DNA in general versus elephants? So is it complete what you have or is it very uh, fragmented? So it's uh, it's uh, definitely not complete. Uh, so what we what we work with here is, uh, so the youngest sample, the one which is 700,000 years old, uh, that one we have something more than 1x coverage, meaning that 
each position in the genome is covered at least once, but it's on average. So that means that we do have some parts of the genome which are covered more than that, and some parts which are not covered at all. And for the other two older samples, it's um, it's a uh, worse. So we don't have the full full coverage. Sort of, we don't have the one X genome, which we could say then that we have the full genome. But we do have quite a good representation of the genome. So quite a lot of uh, the positions and good part to sort of be able to analyze these things that we've managed to do. So uh, uh, with, with this kind of uh, degradation, so the, to all the samples, uh, they had one to two percent endogenous DNA content, which means that that's the authentic DNA in the sample. So when we sequence, we sequence everything which is in the sample, meaning that most of it is going to be bacteria and contamination from the environment, from the time when the animal died all the way to present and, and the soil that the bone was buried in or the tooth was buried in or the contamination from whoever touched it or or sneezed on the bone. We try to minimize this as much as we can in the lab, uh, but it's still there. So that's uh, one of the tricky parts of working with this kind of DNA as well as the fragmentation because the DNA degrades. Uh, so it's uh, shorter and shorter, which which results in, in us being able to recover a small but uh, still good part of the genome in some ways. Is there any part of the teeth that were um, that were virgin, were untouched? You know, any micro environment that again yeah. was unseen by the air or by people until you guys worked on the sample? Yeah, exactly. So that's what we are always trying to trying to find, and you have to be a bit lucky about this because. Well, we, we can always uh, sort of remove the surface layer, which is going to be the most likely to be contaminated. Uh, and then you try to find a piece which, which doesn't seem to have any cracks, which, along which the bacteria could invade the bone or the tooth. So you try to kind of find this part, which is very, very hard, very sturdy, because that means that it's also going to be resistive to bacteria as well. But it's not always easy to choose as well. For example, with teeth like this, it's... Um, you don't really want to destroy the whole tooth, so we usually just get a small subsample, and there's not so much choice. But uh, and then it's always a bit about luck to find the right spot to not hit the pocket of bacteria which is in there. Well, you might want to you know separately analyze the bacteria that's trapped in there. That might be great. You know, if they're uh, trapped definitely. inside the tooth for a million years, that might be. Yeah, that, definitely. That's that's one of the things that uh, people are starting to work on. It's a bit. Uh, it's still a little bit difficult uh, in some ways because also the uh, the bacterial uh, reference database is is still only being filled and kind of uh, putting these bacteria, the old ones, into perspective and, and deciding if they are really that old, considering like uh, how fast uh, their generation time and everything is. It's a bit more complicated in some ways. Uh, it's not like when you have a mammoth and you can clearly see if it's been contaminated with something else, with a dog or so. That's uh, much easier than kind of showing that the bacteria that we find in there are really um, that old and they are from the time when the animal died. Uh, it's going to be also much easier sort of to contaminate it with the modern day bacteria. Are there other creatures that lived a little bit before the mammoths or lived with them but predated them? You know, that had nice juicy teeth for you to, to sample? I don't know <laughs> if saber-toothed tigers were way before them or is there any other, you know, rhinoceroses or anything that lived around their time that, again, would take you back a little further? Yeah, for sure. There, there's going to be other, other species uh, that lived alongside mammoths up there. 
I, I don't know, to be honest, uh, exactly when which species developed, or, or but definitely at least their predecessors. So this kind of uh, high latitude fauna with wool with rhinoceroses, horses, bison, and so on was up there. So there's certainly space for more discoveries. I don't know exactly which species or, or which ones lived lived up there, but we do think that now we sort of open a new window into into this really old-time genetics, and, and there's certainly going to be more discoveries. And we think that it is possible that people will go at least to 2 million, maybe. Is there any, I don't know, is there any known interaction between, um, you know, hominids and, uh, and mammoths at that time? Is there a lot of interaction? I mean, at the million year ago, Mark? Yeah, so back then, the at least the our ancestor, modern humans or the ancient humans didn't even exist, or the Neanderthals and Denisovans did not exist at the time. So it would have to be all the way back. So that's actually quite interesting when we start looking at these really ancient timelines. And, and people often don't even sort of, or didn't think about it sort of until this point. I have been working with my PhD on, on the very last population of the woolly mammoths. So sort of working in the last 10,000 years. So even for me, it's very interesting to suddenly think about a time scale where, where we have samples one million years old and the environments were very different and also what we know about them is very different. So we don't have quite the luxury as, as we do with samples, let's say 10,000 years old, of uh, having a very good record of radiocarbon dates knowing when the, how old the samples are, knowing how the climate looked like, knowing which species live there. With these really old ones, with samples which are one million years old, it's a bit, uh, we have to rely much more on the geology, the stratigraphy, the, for example, dating through things like volcanic eruptions, magnetic reversals. And it's a very different way of, of studying this. Uh, this evolutionary history. And just last question or so, what's, um, you said elephants are the most similar to them, but what's different about mammoths versus elephants? You know, if I look at an elephant today, what would be different about a mammoth? Yeah, that's a really good question. I'm always, I'm always thinking about this more from the perspective of in what way they are similar. So interesting to think about what they are, in what they are different. I think it's actually very surprising in, in how similar they were. So we think that they had very similar social structures, for example, and also sort of, so what, what do we know about the biology of, of mammoths? We very much base on what we know about elephants. So it's kind of difficult to know something about animal from its bones only. Uh, but what we know about mammoths is a lot based on, for example, also these uh, like frozen bodies or uh, mummified bodies, or we found their coprolines or even footsteps. And it's quite surprising that all of these things point us to thinking that they were very similar to elephants uh, in terms of social structure, behavior, and things like that. But of course, it's it's really difficult to say things like, did they have similar communication, memory, and, and things like that, as, as elephants do? That's very difficult to do just with fossils. So what's next with, uh, you know, your mammoth work? What do you want to focus on next? You said your, work, your PhD is on the most recent mammoths. So so I actually, yeah, even though I'm still working on some projects uh, from my PhD, I'm, I'm now working on different things. So I'm actually working on 
a different Arctic animal on, on muskox. But I'm also going to be working on elephants soon. I'm starting a new project in June. But I'm still a little bit tied to my mammoth work, which I did in Stockholm during my PhD. But they are certainly continuing. So there are other PhD students and postdocs working on the mammoth project. And yeah, as I said, the, la- the work is mostly focused on, on the last population of, of mammoths. We are studying a lot uh, what happened before they went extinct. Certainly, they're also looking at, at these very old ones and they want to focus more on uh, getting more of these uh, mammoths working because the free samples that we analyzed were not the only ones that we got from Andre Scher. So uh, we would like to try to get get more DNA uh, even from the old timelines. Yeah, very, very cool. But Patricia, what's the best way for people to find out more about your work? There you go. So I'm quite active on Twitter, where I post about my work at, at uh, Patricia Krzan, which is C-H-R-Z-A-N. And uh, yeah, so I am trying to kind of disseminate uh, a lot of my work through through Twitter and sharing what, what I'm doing and, and trying also a bit uh, working on science communication and disseminating research to, to the public as well. So Okay, well, very good. Patricia, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thank you very much for having me. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.